0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, for Donald Trump, crime is not a problem to be solved. It is a weapon to be wielded. That's what Chris Hayes says. We'll be speaking with him about how Trump has transformed this long-standing weapon of the right. His book, A Colony in a Nation, is out now in paperback with a new afterword. Also, men explain things to me. This week is the 10th anniversary of the publication of that essay by Rebecca Solnit. We'll revisit the interview we did with her about that essay when it came up. First up, Today in Trump World with John Nichols. Trump Watch starts right now. For today's political update, we turn once again to John Nichols. Of course, he's National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. We reach him today in Madison. Hi, John. Hi, John Weiner. <laughs> well, uh, there's breaking news from Wisconsin uh, today, and uh, you have it and we don't. What's going on there?
1: Well, you always have it, John. You're you're on the cutting edge there on the on the left coast. But uh, um, no, it's a really big deal, and it relates to you know all the things you talk about on Trump Watch and in this broader sense. Um, About four months ago, uh, or three months ago, the nation started a crusade, and that was uh, uh, focusing on governors around the country who were refusing to call special elections for vacant state legislative seats because they feared, or at least our assumption is, they feared that if a special election was held, there would be more of these surprise victories for Democrats. And you know that there have been about 40 special elections since Trump came into the presidency for state legislative seats, uh, where Democrats have flipped Republican-held seats often seats that have been historically Republican for decades, even centuries. And it's one of the places where the vulnerability for Republicans in this moment is most evident.
0: And in fact, one of those seats, let me just interject, one of those seats was in Wisconsin, very close to Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. It was right on the border there. Yeah.
1: And, um, and that election, Scott Walker in Wisconsin called last year, right? And then yeah. it was held you know, right early this year. But it was such a devastating defeat for the Republicans, as they've experienced a number of others, that Walker has since then refused to call special elections when that, seats come open.
0: That seems wrong. So that seems so wrong. totally wrong.
1: <laughs> and he's not alone. Um, you know, Rick Scott's doing it down in Florida. Hmm. Um, Schneider is doing it in Michigan. Uh, and they are often leaving legislative seats vacant for a full year. I mean, literally, like a huge amount of time. And Schneider in Michigan is leaving John Conyers' congressional seat, a seat that represents, you know, a huge swath of working-class people who are especially affected by a lot of what's going on in Congress. He's leaving it vacant for a year, Mm. right? They have no representation for a year. And so the nation has made this a big crusade. Um, The first case coming off this got into a court a few days ago, and it was in Wisconsin where Scott Walker's left two seats open. Uh, and a judge who was appointed by Scott Walker ripped him on it, just said, you're, you're just wrong on this. You can't, you can't say that you have representative democracy and then you don't give people elections to fill their seats. And uh, ripped the governor's uh, logic on it as, as just irrational, you know, in conflict with his own statements, and ordered the elections to be held.
0: Well, congratulations to uh, you and all the other people who uh, who worked on this uh, and uh, tell us a little bit more about the national implications.
1: Well, the national implications are very, very big as i said you 've got a congressional seat in Michigan that 's being left vacant as Congress meets you know they 're just literally dealing with a budget, the House of Representatives, and a portion of the city of Detroit you know are unrepresented. How can you have that in in the United States at this point it's it's something we should be screaming about. We should be making a lot of noise about it. Because this, John, is the ultimate voter suppression. Yeah. You know, you can talk about voter ID, you can talk about delaying early voting, limiting participation, all these things which are real, but not holding elections.
0: <laughs> that seems to be worse. If you
1: get away with that. <laughs> that seems to be worse. It is. It's <laughs> bad. And if, it, and if you see it happen in more and more states, Uh, You know, clearly the Democrats have done some of this in the past too, so it's not nobody's totally innocent, but clearly this is something that a lot of Republican governors are doing, and it is a reflection, I think, uh, and I think a lot of other people believe as well, of the deep Republican concern at this point that Donald Trump's impact on their party uh, is not just in Washington, it's not just a federal thing, that it really kind of, you know, streams down into. Uh, state and local elections, and that 2018, if you go on the pattern that we're on, could turn out to be a year where a tremendous amount of change occurs, where um, you could see a lot of, of flipping of, of state legislative seats all over the country. And it's it's a lesson, I think, for people who watch what Trump's doing a lot, I mean, You know, watch every tweet, hear all the, the news about him, to recognize that the play out of this is, is not just, you know, this week in Washington. It has potential to, to change things in states across the country at the legislative level uh, and really to reverse a lot of the damage that's been done, frankly, over the last eight to ten years. and, so, and one of the reasons we look at all this, yeah.
0: Well, I, I just want to say th- this. So the Trump effect com- comes down to hurt Republicans in very local elections for state legislative representatives, it also goes back up the other way on the Democratic side because Democrats get mobilized to run campaigns, to go door-to-door, to to talk to their neighbors, to build their local political machines. And those machines are not going to go away. Once people see that they're starting to win, they're, they're going to be energized. They're going to be more enthusiastic about turning out Uh, the vote uh, in November when we'll be re-electing, when we'll be electing a a House and a Senate.
1: That's exactly, well, it's exactly part of it. And so that's the one side, and you've put a very positive uh, framing on it. The flip side, though, is this refusal to call special elections gives you some indication of how far these Republican allies of Donald Trump, people like Scott Walker, will go in order to prevent accountability. And it's it's really, it's an alarm system, if you will. Uh, The forces of light won a court case today. That's very, very important. But what we should understand is that if you've got Republican governors who will go to the extent of not calling special elections in, in clear contravention of state statutes and the basic concepts of representative democracy, you shouldn't be surprised as they move ever more draconian voter ID laws as they, you know, try to limit early voting, as they try to put restrictions on same-day registration. Um, this, is, this is a point at which uh, there are, of course, tremendous political opportunities for real change, but there will also be people in powerful positions who resist that change. And so we, the people, uh, all of us, have to be very conscious of that, very supportive of organizations that are trying to expose and challenge it, like the Brennan Center and others who are really looking at these voting rights issues, like the um, there 's a new national group for voter justice a National Commission on voter justice that i 've been associated with to some extent and and some other groups that are really trying to bring these issues to a head and we ought to be paying attention to to their kind of cries in the wilderness sometimes because even if you 've got a you know, look at what some people call a blue wave coming if they if they really think you're going to have a very good democratic year. Um, one must be conscious of the fact that a failure to fully realize potential democracy, make sure that every election's held, that everybody wants to register, can register, that every vote is cast, that every vote is counted. If you fail in that, two things may happen. One, you might be shocked by the result. It might not be what you expect. But two, even if you get a positive result, it might not fully reflect the shift in the country. And so uh, we can never let go of this uh, concern about voter suppression and this passion for, you know, making real the promise of voter, voting rights for everybody, Democrats yeah. and Republicans, independents, liberals, conservatives, whoever, uh, because it, if indeed the country is moving toward a more progressive place, you want to get a real clear reflection of that.
0: And if our listeners want to read more about this, uh, John Nichols has just posted a piece at TheNation.com. Scott Walker is ordered to stop blocking special elections. Read about it at TheNation.com. Of course, the biggest headlines in today's paper were about Trump's tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminum imports, which go into effect uh, tomorrow. It's his strongest trade action yet against the country he has branded an economic enemy, and this fulfills one of his core campaign pledges, so he can say he's keeping a promise. What's, what's at stake here? Well, lot's at stake. Trade
1: policy is a huge deal in a globalized world, right? Um, you know, we don't, we don't live in you know, 1955 or 1965. We live in a point where what we produce often goes overseas, what is produced overseas, to an even greater extent, comes here. It affects consumers, it affects workers, it affects communities and everything. Now, I think it's very, very important to not fall into the trap of just saying, because Trump did this, it's bad, right? Because Trump used tariffs or or used trade policy in a way to try and protect workers, communities, the environment, uh, that that's bad. And I, I really counsel against that, because the fact of the matter is that many progressive Democrats and independents and great people for a long time have been arguing that we need to alter our trade policies. That we, A, should not have, be running these massive trade deficits uh, with countries like China and other places, and B, that that bad trade policy for the United States is often bad for workers in other countries as well. Right? Yes. That if you get onto that low road and you're always kind of like no rules, you know, allow dumping of goods, it's not like it necessarily enriches working class people in other countries. It often creates untenable working conditions and, and incredible pressures that, that don't begin to distribute the wealth fairly. Uh, you know, obviously we don't do it in the United States, but they also don't do it in China. And so the bottom line is that I think what Trump is doing is ham handed irresponsible, and badly thought. By the same token, I think that, that those of us who favor uh, a humane and responsible fair trade policy that really does look out for workers in the U.S. and abroad can't get into this, this you know, kind of rush to demonize the change. What we, what we should be advocating for is smart policies in this regard. And the smart policies in this regard borrow a lot from Germany. We should recognize that there are some points at which tariffs and trade restrictions may be useful, but they have to come as part of a broader industrial policy, a broad vision on how you make sure that, that working class communities that may lose a factory have new models for employment, new avenues for getting jobs, and and making sure that, you know, what you do on one side, right, maybe a tariff on one side, doesn't wreck the economy on another side. Yeah. And the problem for the United States is we don't have an industrial policy. We don't have a plan that we plug this all into and and have it make sense. If we did, if we did, um then yeah, there'd be times where we might threaten tariffs or might even do tariffs. But that that would not be um you know, it, it would not probably be the way that Trump does it because again, I think I don't think Trump has thought these issue, issues through. I think he adopted concerns that were real in America and just kind of throws things at him, sometimes quite irresponsibly.
0: Excellent. Uh, one more thing we need to talk about, which everybody's talking about, uh, Facebook. <laughs> Facebook. Uh, yeah. Facebook. uh uh, Facebook profiles, tens of millions of Facebook profiles were acquired by this firm Cambridge Analytica, uh, paid for by the evil Spencer family to, uh, help make Trump, Mercer, Mercer the evil Mercer family, uh, to help make Trump, uh, president. Um, the striking thing here to me about this whole story is that th- those millions of Facebook profiles, which Cambridge Analytica put to use for the Trump campaign, uh, Facebook was not actually hacked. Nobody hacked Facebook. It's actually Facebook's business model to share its profiles with other uh, concerns. Isn't that right? Yeah. And and you know, this is the thing. I, I don't know. Do you do Facebook? Yeah, I have a Facebook page. Doesn't everybody? I don't. You don't? I don't. You tweet. Never have. You tweet. Neither is my colleague neither is my colleague Bob McChesney. Both of us have written about media for a long
1: time. Neither of us have Facebook pages. And because when Facebook was rising, I mean, it was very obvious what their business model was. And their business model – it's not to say people who have Facebook pages are bad or anything like that. It's just to say that, you know, now we're starting to realize what Facebook is. It's a mining company. It's a mining concern. And you're the mineral. (laughs) And and the fact is, they're very exploited. They're not a very, they're not a environmentally conscious mining concern, if let, there ever
0: was one. Let me just um, say, what you are saying here is absolutely. You knew about this years ago. Actually, anyone who was paying attention to Facebook knew this was happening a year ago, two years ago, more than that. Uh, I don't quite understand why it's such a big deal this week, but remind us what some some people have known for a year or two or three about how Facebook works. Or from the day Facebook was created. Or, yeah, or, Uh, yeah.
1: (laughs) The fact of the matter is that, you know, it's like Facebook, you create a page, right, and then you fill it with a bunch of stuff, and Facebook doesn't charge you to do that. Right. They're a big they're one of the most wealthy corporations in the history of the world. They don't charge you to do that. How do they make money? How do they make money? (laughs) They make money by selling you, you know, by selling your data and the information that you pull together. Because on your Facebook page and on, you know, as you interact with other people, we get a clear picture of your interests. And it's incredibly detailed. You know, Bob and I are working on on our, a couple of our books, including People Get Ready and some other ones. We spent time. You know, we went to uh, visit the Google folks, and we talked with people from Microsoft, and talked with people from all these different entities. And and you know, you start to get a very clear picture of how these huge, incredibly wealthy corporations make their money, and it's off us. And the thing is, they don't share it with us. They're not they're not making us you know any more secure. They're make, not making our lives particularly better. They're just letting us share information, which we used to be able to share in other ways, and we can share on non-exploitive vehicles. And and the thing that, that's concerning here is that everybody's talking about Cambridge Analytica. These are bad players. They've been bad players in the U.S. They've been bad players in other places. The evidence is they're not always that good at what they do. They're kind of bumbling in a lot of cases, or at least have been historically. But they one thing they figured out was how to you know, grab this data and package it in political settings. Again, I think like many of the things the Mercers have been involved in, it's quite inept, but it won't be for long. Yeah. And this is the critical thing to remember. It, it, as long as Facebook and these other operations operate in the way they do, the next election cycle, somebody's going to get better at this. It may not be Cambridge Analytica. It may be somebody you've never heard of. It might even be somebody who you sort of like right, who's maybe on your side of some issues. But at the end of the day, if this becomes our politics, that messages are micro-targeted to groups of voters to exploit their fears, to inflame their hatreds, to make them focus not on issues, but more often than not, on you know that which terrifies them or that which offends them or, or angers them, uh, you're going to end up with politics that makes 2016 look like a nice year.
0: Mm.
2: Hmm.
1: You don't want
0: that. Believe me. <laughs> you don't, you want don't want that. Yeah, I, I understand that. That it was Cambridge Analytica who suggested that uh, uh, phrases like uh, "build the wall." Uh, would get a good response if they were printed uh, as as Facebook uh, messages or pages, and they were looking for a candidate. Originally, it wasn't going to be Trump. Originally, they were they were uh, working for oh. for other people.
1: Well, the Mercers like Ted Cruz. Yeah, and Ted Cruz like the Mercers. Remember, the Mercers have an annual Christmas or annual holiday party. It's more like a costume party it's before Christmas, uh, where candidates come and to give Donald Trump his credit. He, re- he did go to the party in 2016, <laughs> but he refused to dress up. He said, I'm coming as the president elect. But a year before, when Ted Cruz went, he dressed up as Teddy Roosevelt. Oh he actually God. wore a costume for them. Oh. You know, that's how powerful these people are. It's horrible. You know, they're just, it's, it's stunning. And um, they were looking for a way to get a president. Um, they didn't get the Ted Cruz they wanted, but they ended up with the Donald Trump. And they did that by putting their people, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, Kellyanne Conway, into the Trump campaign. They brought along Cambridge Analytica. And and the thing, again, to understand about Cambridge Analytica is don't fall into the trap of thinking that this entity is like a one-off, like it's some rare, like weird thing. No. Yeah. There's a ton of people trying to figure out how to make money in politics by making it more coarse, more vile, more horrifying than it already is, and they're not going to stop unless we figure out how to, you know, apply a public interest standard to Facebook and a lot of other institutions. We We cannot just say, yeah, you can define our communications, right? There isn't going to be any transparency, and there's going to be this incredible level of, of you know, stealing of our data, basically. What has to happen is not to censor Facebook. I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of censoring anybody. But what I do say is that there should be dramatically more transparency. If they, You ought to give permission, formal, explicit, and well-defined, clear, not in some 10,000-word statement, clear permission every time somebody takes your data.
0: And I think we're going to have to call it quits there. They're not going to stop. It's up to us to put the policies in place to protect our information. John Nichols, read at the Thank you, John.
1: Good to be with you, brother, as always.
0: I'm John Weiner, live in L.A. on KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, men explain things to me. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues it's the same old story this is trump watch i'm john wiener live in la on kpfk later in this hour what what trump means when he says he's tough on crime Chris Hayes will comment. But first, Men Explain Things to Me. This week is the 10th anniversary of the essay with that title written by Rebecca Solnit. Of course, she's written many other things, more than a dozen books. My current favorite is The Faraway Away Nearby. She's also a columnist for Harper's. I spoke with her about Men Explain Things to Me when her book with that title was published, and I asked her to start by telling the story of herself and her friend Sally at a party in Aspen.
2: Okay, once upon a time in 2003, my friend Sally took me to a fancy party whose host said to me, so, I hear you've written a few books. And I said, well, several, actually. And he said, and what are they about? And I said, well, many, various things, actually. The most recent one, and I mentioned, I gave a little synopsis of uh, River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge and the Technological Wild West, which had just come out a few months before, and he interrupted me to say, have you heard about the very important Moybridge book that came out this year? And I was in that sort of ingenue role where you let people tell you what's what and was willing, you know, because that 40-something, I was one of the youngest people at the party and still used to being pushed around, and waited for him to tell me that some book on my subject had come out that I didn't know about. But my friend Sally was a little more on it in that moment. And she kept interrupting him as he went on sonorously about this very important book I really should know about to say, that's her book. (laughs) And she had to say it three or four times before he finally heard her and shut the hell up. And, uh, you know, and a man explaining to me that I should know all about this very important book without finding out that actually, not only did I know about it, I read it, is, One of the incidents that gave rise to the lovely, handy Portmano word
0: mansplaining. And um, can you explain why men do this?
2: Um, Well, you would be officially more of an expert on that (laughs) than me, John. But uh, you know, I've been studying the gender for about fifty years now, and I have a lot of theories. And uh, although I have to say, it's a very varied, uh, you know, sample group I've been drawing from. And. Many of them are lovely, not to get into the not-all-men stuff, but um, there are a lot of guys out there who believe that they're just inherently more knowledgeable, that they were put on earth to explain that they are there to sort of impregnate women, us empty vessels with the profundity of their knowledge, or, or just love the sound of their own voice, or just don't seem to know that actually a lot of women are you know educated informed and might actually know more about that than they do and um you know but i see it as part of a much larger problem which is an authority problem which is assumption that i have the right to tell you what to think i assume you i'm in control and you're not i assume i'm the speaker and you're the listener and that's a slippery slope that could get into much more dire problems
0: I want to talk briefly about the the shootings in Santa Barbara, which, of course, go beyond men explaining things. Six people killed, 13 wounded. But men uh, have explained it, and the favorite explanation is this was the work of one extremely crazy person. I think you have a, a different explanation.
2: A lot of people have a different explanation, including some of the parents of the murder victims, It really felt like uh, some kind of uh, incredible uh, contest this weekend for people to wrestle with the meaning of this event, and I think that feminists and anti-gun people and humanists won, and every time this happens, and it happens a lot, we've had, I think, 44 school shootings since Sandy Hook, which was only 18 months ago. Every time it happens, people say, oh, this is an isolated incident. It was an aberrant human being. He was mentally ill. And, of course, it's always a he. And, um, you know, and it's none of those things because these are extreme. You know, they're not aberrant. They're extreme. They're extreme versions of what's in a very violent, misogynist culture that suggests that violence brings great satisfaction and resolution, that you have the right to kill people that killing people is satisfying, that women owe you something. In the case of this killer who, you know, there's another important word, sexual entitlement, that has really caught fire this week because it explains that sense that women, you know, that a lot of men have, that women owe them something and they have the right to uh, either extort it or to punish women, all women or any woman, if they don't get what they want. This sense that, that we owe them something, we, that we owe them ourselves, essentially. So it's given rise to a really interesting discussion that I think is changing things a little, or maybe a lot.
0: Uh, when, um, when some men explain this, they, they make the argument you referred to a little while ago, not all men. Not all men are insane killers of women. You've, you're one of the people who's been using the hashtag, yes, all women. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute.
2: Yes, all women, or not all men, or some of both. Yeah, there's this phrase that's become really common the last couple years, in particular, not all men, where a woman is trying to talk about the hideous violence we live under. There, a woman is beaten every nine seconds in this culture. About there's a rape almost every minute in the United States. At, um you know, um, male violence is a greater cause of injury to women between 15 and 44, then traffic accidents, cancer, and, uh, you know, or I should say hospital visits and traffic accidents, cancer, and a host of other problems. It's a huge problem, and yet so often you try and talk about it, and we need to talk about this. It's It's huge, and it makes some guy uncomfortable, and he starts saying not all men, and it's happened a lot in online discussions, and what he's basically saying is, when you say that, it makes me feel uncomfortable, and my comfort is actually more important than you discussing your survival or what it's like to feel terrified, or the fact that most women live in, live in fear, or the fact that more than three women a day are murdered by their intimate partners in this country. And so feminists apparently got tired of this hijacking the conversation, and uh, there was a hashtag, and I don't know if it was serious or parody, it's called Not All Men. And the response that started on Saturday and, resp- and partly in response to the killings um, is the hashtag at Twitter, Yes All Woman, that got half a million tweets by the end of, uh, I think, Sunday night. And it's women just bearing uh, witness to what they have endured and what it means and saying just really extraordinary things like, I shouldn't be afraid to speak up about this, but I am, or Yes All Woman, because. You know, if I'm if I'm too nice, I'm asking for it, and if I'm not nice, I'm a bitch, and etc. And uh, you know, and just you know, there's millions of brilliant ones. Everyone should go look at just do a search on Twitter for uh, "yes all women" one word, and you'll just see these amazing conversations and confessions and revelations going on.
0: Hashtag yes all women. We're speaking with Rebecca Solnit. She's got a terrific new book out, Men Explain Things to Me. Um, Change of subject here. You, You write wonderful stuff on your Facebook page. Recently, you posted a little piece called Today in Bellicose Passivity, where you took up the question, how can we celebrate a great victory when terrible things are happening elsewhere in the world? How does this argument go?
2: Oh, I was just making fun of the fact that there's so many kind of reflexive leftists and, yes, KPFK listeners, that could include you. Oh, no. No. <laughs> how no. Horrible. Uh, uh, no, but, you know, that, you, that something fantastic happens, and they'll say, yes, but, and it's a little bit like Not All Men, where they're kind of changing the subject. You know, there will be these great victories, and they'll say, yes, but Palestine, or, you know, like, I don't know, the Zapatistas could conquer Mexico tomorrow, and somebody would say, yes, but what about Palestine? You know, and it's this weird way often of changing the subject, of like snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, of kind of keeping the conversation dismal and framing it as though we're really powerless. And what does that serve? I think it serves... um, I think for a lot of people it's not even exactly a worldview, it's a reflex, it's just this bad habit. But in some ways it is a worldview. It's a worldview that a lot of people are attached to, that we're powerless, we we can't win, we can't change anything, which of course gets us off the hook, because if that's the case, then we don't really have to try. But we have changed the world in extraordinary ways. We are doing it now, I think, the feminist conversation uh, the last couple of years has changed things profoundly. Changed it a lot this weekend, and because we have power, we're required to use, you know to use it, uh, you know, wisely and well. Because we have power, we have to do stuff. You know, powerlessness is something, a belief that gets you off the hook.
0: I, I would list among the, the victories that we should be recognizing is the the progress in uh, uh, doing something about sexual assault on, on campus.
2: That has been so amazing, no thanks to university authorities overall. It's really been this extraordinary movement orchestrated largely by young women, many of them survivors of rape and assault, who just got tired of the university's burdening the young woman rather than the men. And, you know, as one of the uh, recent feminist sayings go, don't tell your daughter how to avoid getting raped. Tell your sons not to rape. You know, that really, there were so many ways that it's been wrong in not prosecuting and investigating these things, in worrying more about the well-being of the perpetrator than the victim, not believing young woman, um, coming up with these ridiculous Band-Aid remedies that often required young women to live in the same dorm with or go to the same classes with somebody who's assaulted them and um, you know you want to talk about that culture of entitlement Uh, one of the headlines today is that a guy at Duke got expelled from the university because he raped one of his fellow students and he's suing Duke it's like how could you do this to me I lost a job at a Wall Street firm sometimes it seems like every single young man at Duke is on his way to a Wall Street (laughs) firm but um, it's like, how dare you ruin my future? And but one of the things that is interesting is that some of these crimes are kind of ruining people's men's futures, which might make them think twice about it. gerbash Chahal, the uh, billionaire tech CEO who was caught on video beating his girlfriend 117 times and threatening to kill her, you know, um, basically got a slap on the, what do we call it, a slap on the wrist for what he did because he's... Rich men lawyer up really well, as Dominique Strauss-Kahn and O.J. Simpson can remind you. But um, he got uh, sort of dismissed as CEO. It's an interesting transitional moment we're in.
0: One more thing that um, you have written a lot about almost daily on your Facebook page, and that's uh, uh, Google and the transformation it's bringing to San Francisco. Google has also recently moved into Uh, santa monica and is wreaking some of the same uh, results uh, around here Uh, you have a feature called today in google watch Uh, how are we doing uh, on google watch lately
2: oh my god they bought some more surveillance companies they've got a lot of killer uh, robotics uh, companies Um, you know they are so diversified in octopus that it's hard to even know where all their tentacles go and what what they're up to we really need something more than me, you know, recreationally or lightly posting on a page. Well, there are those but,
0: those those direct action uh, folks in costumes who perform in front of the Google bus.
2: Oh, they were lovely on the on April Fool's Day. You know, I have to say though, I'm not that concerned. I'm not concerned primarily about what Google was doing to San Francisco in particular. I'm concerned in general about what Google and some of the other tech companies that are violating your privacy and amassing huge monopoly power are doing to you know our civilization our information and our freedom you know one of my nicknames for google is hipster stasi another one is big <laughs> hipster brother or big hipster brother uh, because you know they have all they, they're very good at what they do they have nice graphics and nifty daily doodles and you know they started out with a really good search engine although now i hear it's skewed by advertising but uh you know they get scarier and scarier. They, everything you do, every web, nearly every web page you visit has Google Analytics tracking you on it. They know, you know, it's a little bit like Santa or God or something one of those scary children's things. They know everything you're doing, and they're, they remember it all forever. You know, every uh, just think about whether you want someone to know every web search you've ever done, every page you've ever looked at, every post you've ever made. Uh, you know, and you couple that with Facebook, uh, you know, or the fact that Apple already has it set up so they can track every single place you go if you're walking around with a smartphone with the geo-tracking turned on. So we have entered a surveillance state, except that it's not the state that's surveilling us. It's the corporations, which is why some people in the Bay Area talk about the military tech industrial complex.
0: Google as hipster Stasi. That's Rebecca Solnit. Read her in Harper's, and read her new book, "Men Explain Things to Me." Rebecca, it's been great having you on the show.
2: Always a pleasure, John.
0: It's the 10th anniversary of Rebecca Solnit's original essay, "Men Explain Things to Men Explain Things to Me." It's out now on paperback and as an ebook from Haymarket. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. This is Trump Watch. Next up, what Trump talks about when he's talking about crime. Chris Hayes explains. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener. It's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, streaming at kpfk.org. Online anytime you want it, we're the trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Chris Hayes. Of course, he's the Emmy award-winning host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. He's also an editor-at-large of The Nation an author of the New York Times bestseller, A Colony in a Nation, which is out now in paperback with a new afterword. Chris Hayes, welcome back. It's great to be on. Tana nehisi Coates called your book essential and groundbreaking, partly because in the book you ask the question, what do we talk about when we talk about crime? What's the answer?
3: Well, <laughs> a lot of times what we're talking about when we talk about crime is preserving a certain social order. And it's been remarkable to watch the last year unfold with a president who probably more than any president since Nixon, at least rhetorically, sort of invoked law and order, you know, the sort of vision of chaos lawlessness and criminality racking the nation and him coming to restore law and order the obsession with the criminality of immigrants the obsession with the the dangerousness of muslims the obsession with gang violence in you know african american parts of major us cities and so the idea was like i i am the law and order candidate and i will come and restore law and order and then we have watched as person after person in the inner circle has pleaded guilty to felonies in which there's just a sort of orgy of incredible lawlessness uh, around the president of the United States. And you have to wonder like, well, was he really talking about the law? And the answer is no. I mean, this is obviously and very clearly someone whose concern for legality or lawfulness is trivial to non-existent. But One of the theses of the book is that when we talk about law and order, we're not really talking about law. We're talking about order and preserving a specific kind of social order. And what the president makes, I think, manifest in in almost a useful way, because he's so brazen about it, is that crime to him is something that other people do. (laughs) So when Michael Flynn, his national security advisor, lies to investigators, which is a crime, he goes and says to James Comey, according to James Comey, like, can you let him go? Can you see your way to letting him go? When his staff secretary is accused by two ex-wives of being abusive, including one with a photo of him, her, him putting a vase into her face and giving her a black eye, he tweets about how there's no due process anymore. Suddenly this is the guy who said the Central Park Five should be executed, and then when they were subsequently exonerated, refused to acknowledge that, all of a sudden is, is obsessed with due process. The guy who led Chance of lock her up is obsessed with due process. And the point is that, like, this is not hypocrisy. It's actually an integrated worldview in which the law and criminality is wholly defined by who is committing what offenses and which side of allegiance they're on.
0: There was the interesting case of Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona, a Republican, not a criminal, who criticized Trump, split with Trump. And Trump replied in a tweet that Senator Jeff Flake was, quote, weak on crime, Is Jeff Flake
3: really weak on crime? Well, it's so funny. He will use that invocation. He'll, anyone he doesn't like, he calls weak on crime. Um, so when Ralph Northam was running at, at Gillespie in Virginia, again, Ralph Northam was weak on crime. Jeff Flake, when he didn't like Jeff Flake, he's weak on crime and weak on borders, right? And, and again, it's a sort of useful shorthand. He's not really saying anything about the crime voting record of any of these people, right? What he's saying is not one of us won't protect our own, isn't a person who will sort of erect barriers to protect uh, people like you, white people, who are scared of others uh, from their incursions and invasions and depredations, and so, you know, Donald Trump couldn't could not tell you a single crime vote that Jeff Flake has ever taken. <laughs> I guarantee it. Right? <laughs> I but think that. Right. But. But manifestly, that's not what it's about. And it's actually useful for him to just kind of, you know, make the subtext text as he has a tendency to do, say the choir part loud, that, you know, weak on crime does not mean weak on crime.
0: So mostly the crime, in quotes, the crime issue has been used to mobilize white fear, very old tactic goes back, you show in the book, long before Trump, you've mentioned Nixon. But Trump has done one new thing with the crime issue. He says immigrants are criminals. That
3: that seems like a, a break from the past, isn't it? The version that he has implemented is, I think, relatively new. And in an interesting way, one of the ways in which he's distinct from Nixon or sort of represents a kind of evolution of Nixonian rhetoric is Nixon's rhetoric on law and order really was about african-americans in major cities and trump uses that language too but there's two other groups that even get more attention. The the, the first is immigrants and and criminal immigrants, MS-13, and the other are are Muslims, right, who are sort of born suspect, born guilty even if they're refugee children fleeing a horrifying war in Syria. So the the, the basic framework of white fear and sort of defense against the dark other that was so useful to Nixon and then subsequent other politicians across the country, Reagan as well, George H.W. Bush with Willie Horton, of course, that same rhetoric the same kind of structure is then used to apply to immigrants and and you know 1 billion muslims around the world and almost kind of cut and paste in terms of the way that it that it's employed
0: you mentioned MS13 i never knew much about MS13 until the last year now our president talks about it a lot what well, what does MS13 have to do with immigration
3: you know m s thirteen there's so much about it that's sort of a perfect microcosm of the whole issue. One is that we had someone who we, we just ran a, a a feature we did on on m s thirteen in long island and and particularly among central american uh immigrant communities where where the you know the gang is present um And someone who works with folks who are sort of in gangs and trying to move out of gangs said, you know, there's never been a greater promoter and propagandist on behalf of MS-13 than the president. (laughs) I mean, he talks about them like, you know, he talks about them like they're ISIS or Al-Qaeda or some global superpower. Um, And that, you know, that's sort of good for recruiting, right? I mean, the idea of like you're trying to appeal to alienated young men who feel powerless and you want to give them power. Um, to say, like, you could come join some organization that the president of the United States uses enemy number one, like, has its own cachet. So there's a certain self-defeating quality to the way that he has elevated their profile. The second thing that's ironic about MS-13 is that it started in America. It's an American export. Um, it was the, the product of Central Americans fleeing the dirty wars uh, that 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 were often backed by uh, you know in El Salvador and Nicaragua, and other places with uh, huge American support and a huge refugee population moving to California, and the, the the gang, such as it was, sort of starting in American prisons and then being deported back to Central America where it took even further route and now is this kind of phenomenon both in central america which is some of the highest homicide rates in the entire world at the moment it's it's the and and those homicide rates are the cause of a lot of the uh refugee crisis of of central american migrants coming up to the u.s and also in the u.s so you know, MS-13's bad. Like They're, they're terrible. <laughs> they do all, absolutely horrible and evil things. There's no question about that, and no one knows that better than the folks that have to deal with you know, the gang's power and influence, particularly in Central America and in Central American communities in the U.S. But the, other, the third irony here is the fact that, you know, the victims of MS-13 tend to be fellow people in the community, which is to say immigrants themselves. Yeah. And if you're trying to police... A community, then you need those folks who might be victims to trust to call the police and not get turned over to the authorities because of their immigration status. And, you know, the president and his policies and his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, are, are, are attempting to attack the local policies that would make that kind of trust possible.
0: So we've talked about how being, quote, strong on crime has been a Republican tactic going back at least to nixon to mobilize white fear but i think we left out bill clinton
3: and not just bill clinton i mean democratic politicians up and down the ballot and across the country i mean one of the the amazing things about the sort of particularly the crime years of the 1990s and this is documented in, in with incredible sort of texture and care by james Former junior in his book locking up our own which is just a phenomenal book black mayors of major cities who sound as Nixonian as anyone when talking about the drug thugs and the gun thugs and how we need more firepower and we need to lock them all up and throw away the key. Um, And they, you know, drug dealers acting like, uh, you know, animals, all this sort of very dehumanizing rhetoric coming from democratic black politicians in major metropolises from Atlanta to Washington DC to Baltimore to Cleveland. This kind of politics spreads far and wide across both both parties and and is often particularly in the 1990s in response to real changes in conditions which is really extremely high levels of violence and homicide and uh, and victimization so it's not just this some sort of creation of political rhetoric you have between 1966 and 1992, a huge crime spike in the country in which rates are doubling and then tripling. And then from 1992 to about 2014-15, you have a kind of symmetrical decline to the point where in 1991 or 2, when I was starting to go down to Manhattan to high school, New York City had 2,300 murders. Last year, it had a little more than 300. Wow. You have a remarkable change. Uh, and this this is true across lots of major cities and and all different categories of crime. Let me interrupt you. Yeah.
0: Is that because we got tough on crime?
3: You know, it's it's a great question because the answer to it is sort of maddeningly complex and undetermined. Like, there is no single consensus definitive view of why crime went down so much. Part of it looks like it was a cohort effect with the baby boomers. Um, that there were a lot of young men in their peak crime-committing age. <laughs> uh, it, you know, starting in 1966, part of it is the structure of illegal drugs and the war on drugs and particularly drug markets. Part of it was incarceration, right? So there's, there's yeah. part of the decline on crime, particularly in the beginning part, and, and I, I, I've been convinced of this, is the, the, the rate of incarceration per crime committed remains steady at the first part of mass incarceration as the amount of people in jail is sort of going up along with the amount of crime and at a certain point the two completely detach from each other and as crime is coming down we keep putting more and more and more and more and more people in prison at some part in the beginning of the process of putting more people in prison, there's some degree to which it probably does have an effect on crime. And yeah. I mean, the obvious thought experiment here is if you put every male in America aged say 18 to 30 in prison, you would almost certainly see a reduction in crime, <laughs> particularly violent crime. That's the <laughs> cohort that, that commits uh, the vast majority of it. That's a, that's a fairly universal truth across very different societies that look very different. But, of course, that would be, you know, unjustifiable. But there's neighborhoods in which, like, essentially an experiment like that was run, right? I yeah. mean, it's just unbelievable percentages of young men of color who are, who are being put into the, the criminal justice system.
0: Let's get back to Trump for a minute. You open the new afterword to your book, A Colony in a Nation, with a statement that may shock uh, a lot of our listeners. You say there's a silver lining to
3: the Trump presidency. What is it? To me, the silver lining is just that he doesn't care enough to go through the motions of of pretending in any plausible way that what he's saying. You know, Mike Pence is an example. Let me say it this way: Mike Pence is an example of a sort of traditional politician who has this kind of like faux earnestness to mask the real meaning of what the sort of nature of his appeals are. Donald Trump sort of dispenses with. That. He's constantly saying the quiet part loud. I mean, my favorite example of this is at one point he's asked about um, a congressman from Pennsylvania who's been appointed to be the drug czar, who himself has uh, very questionable dealings with opioid manufacturers and his role essentially deregulating. Opioids in 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 the country prior to the big sort of opioid epidemic, and so the president gets a question, and the normal thing to say, the thing Mike Pence would say, would be like, well, this guy's a great, you you know, he's an outstanding congressman, he cares about this issue, he knows it really well, and that's why he appointed him. And Trump says, well, he was an early supporter. I think he was one of my first supporters in Pennsylvania, (laughs) and it's like that is a perfect example where like that's often the subtext for why a political appointee happens. But most politicians play along enough. There is this kind of way in which Trump is constantly enunciating the subtext. He, the first thing he says when he comes down the escalator, Mexico sending rapists. You know, Mexico sending rapists is the kind of thing that is the kind of dog whistle message of a lot of political rhetoric in the mainstream about Mexico. But he just comes out and says, yeah, they're sending rapists. Uh, this judge can't judge me because of his heritage. Again, a kind of dog whistle idea that I think is probably relatively widely shared among people with racist views, uh, but he just comes out and says it, and he's constantly doing that. You know, He tells a bunch of cops that you should, you should literally rough up and abuse suspects that you are arresting, um, and has to get a rebuke from like the you know, local police department, which itself has to like sort of say, well, no, obviously you shouldn't do that. So all of that, I think, has been useful because I think it has really revealed what so much of the kind of base driving force of a certain kind of politics really is. It's harder and harder to pretend anymore. Uh, for 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 people to pretend that, for instance, the immigration politics and the and the anti-immigration movement and the immigration restriction movement isn't fundamentally animated by some sort of bigoted animus.
0: <laughs> it seems like this racist animus is now so pervasive in our political system, but. It did not win the Virginia gubernatorial race for the Republicans, and it didn't win that Alabama Senate race for the Republicans. So what should we conclude from that? Well, I think there's, you
3: know, there's limitations to it. And I think um, they are attempting to sort of extract the maximal amount of value over a relatively small portion of the American electorate. And I say relatively small, just maybe not a majority of the American electorate or a majority of white voters, uh, for sure, and they will win a majority of white voters. And you know, they'll uh, on in 2018, they'll win a majority of white voters across the country, across all races, all uh, you know campaigns. They'll they'll almost certainly win a majority of white voters in 2020 in the presidential, but. Country as a whole, you know, it's about forty percent of voters total who who this appeal is really, really effective with. One of the theses of the book is this kind of politics and the politics of white fear. They're really effective with people and and white people in particular, and white people who consider themselves liberals who live in big cities and who hate Donald Trump, but don't necessarily want to see their local schools be rezoned um, or don't necessarily want to like the fact that there are a bunch of teenagers hanging out on the block all the time and might call the cops to to, to clean that up. You know the politics of that are are pro- profoundly powerful across a lot of different ideologies and in a lot of ju- different circumstances, but they're not the only politics there, right? And there's you know there's stuff on the other side fundamentally, and this sort of pure atavistic appeal to the most kind of tribalist and bigoted impulses only goes so far. You you got to give people something other than that, and I I think in some ways we're 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 seeing the limitation of that politics this year. We'll see how it plays out in the, in the midterms.
0: One more thing. The title of your book, A Colony in a Nation, sounds very left-wing. Is that from Malcolm X or is it Stokely Carmichael?
3: <laughs> Hilariously, it is Richard Nixon uh, who, who talked about African-Americans in his 1968 convention acceptance speech, wanting the same thing as white Americans and not wanting to be a, quote, colony in a nation. I think that phrase is probably informed by the intellectual zeitgeist of black nationalism at the time and the notion of sort of internal colonialism, which was a very developed line of, of intellectual inquiry and critique among black nationalists and, and black ap- academics for years. But no, it was, it was a Nixon speech, and, and ironically, as I say in the book, it's, it's that he, as much as anyone, was responsible for precipitating exactly that state of affairs.
0: So for the president and his political movement, crime is not a problem to be solved. It is a weapon to be wielded. That's what Chris Hayes argues in his book, A Colony in a Nation. It's out now in paperback with a new afterword. Chris, it's been great having you on the show today.
3: Thanks so much. I enjoyed it.
0: One more thing. Let's party like it's 1685 at the 10-hour Bach birthday marathon at Union Station, downtown L.A. this Saturday, March 24th, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., 240 musicians are participating to celebrate Johann Sebastian Bach's 333rd birthday, and everyone involved is a volunteer. Highlights, 9 a.m., kicking off the marathon is Bach's Coffee Cantata. What better way to start the day? At noontime, the organ concert in the old Union Station Ticket Lobby, a fabulous event. I always go to that one. 1 p.m., the Bach Motet, eight singers from the L.A. Master Chorale. 3 pm. the Noir saxophone Portet, a fan favorite of the Bach Marathon. 5:30 the finale. For the full schedule, go to www.cheeheLA1word.org. The Bach Birthday Marathon Saturday at Union Station. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. Coming up next on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly, Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about Trump, what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.